0: And, and what is so exciting about Resurrection Sunday is that, of course, we, we hearken back to what has occurred just this last week. Some of you were here for Good Friday when we remembered the sacrifice that was made for us on the cross. And without the cross, there would be no resurrection. The cross is the place where Jesus paid the price for our sin. If we read in Isaiah 53 and the, the story, the prophecy of the suffering servant, The one who would come and give of himself for the iniquities and rebellions of others. We see Jesus, we see his whole mission shared with us in Isaiah 53. So that on the cross, after Jesus had spent a number of hours and and had spoken a number of times, he reached a point, John tells us in 1930, where after he had received the sour wine, he said, It is is finished. Now you might wonder, well, what's finished? Everything we read about in Isaiah 53, this suffering servant who would come and give his life to pay the price for the sins and rebellion of many, that's what was finished that day on the cross. And what is so significant about the statement, it is finished, is it helps us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the payment For your salvation was complete in that moment on the cross. That when we talk about what does it take to be saved, Jesus has already done all the work to make you right with the Father. He has already done all the work to redeem you from your rebellion and bring you back into the kingdom of God. He has already done all the work to wash you of your iniquities, your sin, your wrongdoing, the evil that resides in your heart. He says it is finished. All the work is done. And how do we know it's done? Because he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The price was paid. Salvation was made possible for all who would believe on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But the exciting thing is that is not the end of the story because Jesus had prophesied a number of times and referred back to the prophecy given in Jonah. Like Jonah was in the the belly of the the fish for three days, I will be in the belly of the earth and then will come forth again. Jesus had already set the stage for his resurrection. And so three days later, we come up on Sunday morning and the world changes yet again. While the price for sin had been paid, while it was possible to, to, uh, to come back to God through what Jesus had done on the cross, the resurrection kind of seals the deal and verifies to everyone that what Jesus said, did, and lived, and done, did on the cross on our behalf was true and valid and powerful. So if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up. We're going to be looking not at all of these passages, but you might want to put your thumb and finger in Matthew and Mark, these sections, or if you have the Bible app, open up your Bible app. These passages will be in the Bible app, as well as the rest of our notes under our event for today. So first we're going to look at Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Now what's interesting is all four of the Gospels share the story of the resurrection, the history of the resurrection, let me let me clarify that. Uh, I, I keep correcting myself, kind of midstream. I say story, I mean history, because it is not a story. It is not a myth. It is history. It is accurate. It is factual. This happened in time and space. It is history that is undeniable. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most affirmed events in all of ancient history. that, that there are. Numerous evidences for his resurrection all throughout recorded ancient history, and so when we talk about Jesus coming back from from the grave, it is not a story in the sense of a myth; it is history. So when you hear me say "story," it's just because you know we tell stories, we repeat history through stories, and so I'm not meaning that it is a myth, but I am meaning it is an important uh, history for us. To understand, so the four gospels all share the history of Jesus' resurrection. But if you were to read in these four sections of the four gospels, each of the resurrection stories, you might see some differences. And and the differences are are the kinds of things that uh, are different if you had something like a car accident and you had four different witnesses from four different perspectives. That someone might notice the color of the car, and someone might notice the direction, and someone might notice that the, the driver had a mustache, and really fixate on that. But all of them share the story of the accident, the history of the accident, from their perspective. And while the particulars might not be exactly the same, when we put the four stories together, we can get the full picture of everything that occurred. And so Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, as they wrote, they wrote from different people's recollections, whether their own, because they were there, or from the recollections of other eyewitnesses. And they each had a unique goal in their writing. Matthew was writing to Jewish believers, trying to help them understand that Jesus was their long-awaited king. Mark was writing to Gentiles. Luke was writing to Theophilus. Whether Theophilus was an actual person or just a pseudonym for the overall God-loving community, we're not sure. But Luke had a specific audience, those who love God and want to know the facts of Jesus' life. And then John wanted everyone to understand that Jesus is the Word, the, the living God, the second person of the Trinity who has always been part of creation, part of sustaining life, and now come in the flesh. And so as each of them wrote their Gospels, they focused on the same things, the same events, but their perspectives are a little different, and so they they fixate on different things. So while one says that this person was the first one to the tomb, uh, the other one over here might say this group of people was the first one to the tomb. What's interesting is the group of people that one author mentions includes the one person that another author mentions. There's never a contradiction in who is there, it's just one guy says i'm focusing on this one person and one guy says i'm focusing on the big group that showed up so in mark chapter 1 or excuse me mark chapter 16 verses 1 through 8 we get the beginning of the resurrection history and uh, i picked this one because of the three matthew mark and luke it is uh, the, the most thorough of the synoptic gospels So it says this, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they could go and anoint Him. Him being... This is Sunday school time too. Him being Jesus. Yeah, it's so... uh if I ask a question nine times out of ten, it's Jesus, God, Holy Spirit. You guys, right? You just, just get the Sunday school answers out of the way, and, uh, and then we'll move on. Uh, so, to anoint Jesus. So, the practice was to anoint the body in spices, uh, and, and to not set it up for preservation, but just to honor the dead. It was, it's unusual for them to do it three days later, but there had been two Sabbaths between the time of Jesus' death and the time of his resurrection. And a Sabbath was a holy day in which they could not interact with the dead. And it was important not to do work on the Sabbath. And so the Friday where he passed away uh, and, and, and then Saturday, both, both of those were Sabbaths. And they kept them from being able to go to the tomb. And and so what we see is that they're finally going back to the tomb. So very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Tombs that most of you know, they're just caves with niches carved into the walls for the bodies to lay on. And they would roll a huge stone in front of them to keep the animals and grave robbers out. And they're wondering, Who's going to move the stone away? Now we'll flip over to Matthew. And in Matthew 28, verse 2, it tells us this. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. Who is it that rolls back the stone? This angel. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. So we see these ladies are coming. They're on their way. There's an earthquake. The stone rolls away. An angel just kind of plops down on top of the stone. He's just like, waiting can you I mean what a cool picture right this angel just kind of hanging out waiting for the ladies to come Matthew goes on to tell us this that his appearance the angel was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow the guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men they just kind of passed out they fainted they were like oh you know, that they're just so overwhelmed with the beauty, the awe of this angel and the circumstance that's going on. They are scared, in fact. And as, as this continues on, the ladies arrive and the angel tells the women, don't be afraid because I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and you will see him there. Listen, I have told you. And so the angel tells the women to go and tell Jesus' disciples who are still waiting back, likely at the upper room where they had met together for the the last supper, the Passover meal. Then Matthew tells us that the ladies departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples the news. So what we see here is is the ladies come to anoint Jesus' body. An angel moves away the stone. The angel tells the ladies, and the ladies go back to the disciples. Now, a a couple of the other Gospels include things like John tells us that, that Peter and John went running to the tomb. Uh, and, of course, John, who is the author of the gospel, lets everybody know that Peter got there uh, uh, second, because John's the one who got there first. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, Peter and I, we went, but I got there first. And, and so John tells us that from a different perspective, that he and Peter got to the tomb, went to see the tomb, and that Mary Magdalene came back and, and hung out and then saw Jesus face to face right there, not just an angel, but Jesus himself. And uh, Mark actually ends with the women leaving the tomb and so scared to death that they don't tell anybody for a little while. Like they're, 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 they're just awestruck. They're struggling to figure out what's going on. And it takes them a while to get back to the disciples and tell the disciples. And so what we see is just different perspectives of the exact same history. None of them contradict. None of them are incorrect. And all of them include different details. Now, Matthew tells us that that Jesus actually met the women as they were getting ready to go back to the disciples and says this to them, greetings. They came up, took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. So Jesus is alive. He has risen from the dead. And the story is true. It is history. It is verified. Uh, The Apostle Paul tells us that, that Jesus appeared to his disciples a number of times over the next 40 days. And he lays it out and says, In fact, there was a time when over 500 people were present and saw the risen Jesus. So a big church full of people see Jesus raised from the dead. We know this is true. We know it happened. One of the ways we know it's true is Scripture tells us that the, the religious leaders of the day were so freaked out about Jesus being gone that they bribed the guards to lie to everyone and tell everyone that Jesus had been stolen from his tomb by his disciples. But they knew it was untrue because they had to bribe the guards and then they had to protect the guards. Because you know what should have happened to these guards who were guarding Jesus' tomb? Had His disciples actually stolen the body? Yes, yeah, somebody gave us the... Yes. They should have been executed for a failure of duty. But they weren't. They were protected. They were paid off and they, were, they told everybody, no, it's not true. But the truth is, is that Jesus rose from the dead. And, and like I mentioned, it is amongst the most uh, affirmed and supported historical events in ancient history out of anything else. We are more certain historically about Jesus rising from the dead than we are about Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon into Rome. (laughs) Okay, so there's one person who knows what that is, uh, right? (laughs) That that we're more certain of, of Jesus' resurrection than nearly any ancient historical event. And what does Jesus' resurrection prove? That's maybe the question, because why did he have to come back to life? Why couldn't he just, you know, appear as an angel and go, hey guys, everything's good, see you later. But no, he he came back physically, physically. he rose from the dead. What does his resurrection prove? Well, the, the scriptures tell us that it proves a couple of things, a number of things. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, He has poured out what you both see and hear. In other words, this is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says that all the Jews who are gathered together to hear him preach, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Old Testament uh, Christ that we have been looking forward to, and we know that because God raised him from the dead. We know that because we have received the Holy Spirit this same day they spoke in tongues, they preached with, with passion and fervor. 3,000 people were saved, received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior because they understood that the resurrection of Jesus proved that he was the one that the Old Testament had promised all these years. Now, you guys remember, we went through the Old Testament together from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where we have the first promise of a man who would come to crush sin. All the way through the Old Testament, we see prophecies of a person, a man, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who will come to redeem mankind, to be king over all. And Peter says the resurrection proves that it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who fulfills all of this. And so Jesus is the promised Savior of the Old Testament. So why is the Old Testament important? Because it tells us that Jesus is coming. Why is the New Testament important? Because it tells us that Jesus has come, and we can put our faith and trust in Him and experience new life and eternal life. What else does the resurrection teach us? Acts thirteen verses thirty-seven through thirty-nine. In a, a, a sermon, the Apostle Paul. Uh, is this Paul? No, this is actually Peter again. My bad. Says this, but the one God raised up did not decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. God raised up Jesus to declare to all of us that the forgiveness of sins is available for everyone who would believe. Jesus' resurrection proves to us, his resurrection proves to us that forgiveness of sin is available to all who would repent and believe. Everyone who would turn away from their sin, everyone who would believe on Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, forgiveness is available. If you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you might think be thinking, I'm too bad, I'm too wicked, I'm, I'm too far gone, the truth is, is that forgiveness of sin is available to everyone who would believe. There is no one here who is too far gone, who is too sinful, too wicked, too evil, to be able to turn around and in a single moment... Be received by Jesus in grace and love and find forgiveness of sin in submission to Him as your Lord and Savior. That is available to everyone. And the resurrection proves that. The last thing we see that we'll look at this morning about what the resurrection proves is this. The Apostle Paul, as he's preaching to a, a bunch of of um, pagan believer pagan uh, god worshipers in Athens he says this to them he says therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance ignorance god now commands all people everywhere to repent in other words god has issued a general command to everybody everywhere turn away from your sin because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed, he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. You know the, the first two things that that jesus resurrection tells us are so exciting he 's the one who 's come to save us. He can save everyone who would believe on him. All you must do is repent and believe. but the last thing that we look at here that his resurrection proves to us is that there is a coming day of judgment based upon your response to Jesus Christ. And that one day, you, no matter how you respond to him today, one day you will see him face to face. And it will either be as your beloved Savior who died on the cross for your sins and rose again on the third day, or it will be as the one who will judge you for your life and your response to Him, and whether or not you loved your own sin more than you loved God. And the day is coming where all of us will be judged based on our response to Jesus. Now that is not uh, to to, to scare you necessarily, but you should be scared. (laughs) That's not my intent to make you go, oh no, hell and brimstone. But to say, let me be honest with you about Jesus. Let me be honest with you about the meaning of His resurrection. I don't want you to fall prey to the the thought that, that the empty cross and the empty tomb declare to you that everything's good. What they declare to you is that everything can be good if you will repent of your own way of doing life, turn away from the things that God declares to be wrong and evil, and turn to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Understanding. That you deserve death because of your rebellion against God. Understanding that you deserve judgment because of your evil deeds and thoughts. But that God loved you so much that Jesus came and lived and died on your behalf. And you believe that your sins were forgiven by His sacrifice. And you're ready to submit your life to Him as your King. Everybody needs to be aware a day of judgment is coming based upon what we do with Jesus. Now, some might say, well, listen, you've got your Jesus thing, but what about all the other ways to God? What about all the other gods? What about all the other people and answers and, and truths out there? I mean, there's some, some good people, some great teachers, some spiritual truths out there. Let me, let me use one of those. First, I want you to see something that Jesus himself declares. He is the only means of salvation for all of mankind. And he says it in a number of ways. Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, he says this. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone who, to whom the Son desires to reveal him. The only way to know God is to know the Son, Jesus the Christ, by repenting of your sin and believing on him as your Lord. Matthew 28 18, Jesus says this. He comes near to the disciples and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Do you think there is another God, another prophet, another means to God that can compete with the truth of Jesus Christ? He declares, I have all the authority on earth. If he has all the authority, and he declares he is the way, how can there be any other answer but Jesus? John 14:6, Jesus tells his disciples on the, the night before his crucifixion, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus himself declares that he is the only means of salvation for anyone who desires to be made right, who desires life to be fixed, who who wants an eternity with God instead of an eternity of judgment. In Luke, Jesus says this, He also said to them, This is what is written, The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus says that He is the one through whom salvation and forgiveness can come through repentance and belief. Now, Jesus isn't the only one. The early disciples, the apostles who began to follow after him uh, in the church movement, they said things like this. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. No other name. In other words, not Buddha, not Muhammad, Not Hare Krishna, though that one's fun to say. No other name under heaven. Romans 5.19 For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Who's that first one man through whom we are all made sinners? Adam. That was one of those questions that's not Jesus, God, or Holy Spirit. And you guys did great. Adam. In Adam, we all fell. We all became sinners. We all established or, or received a, uh, a sin nature, a predisposition to do our own thing and disobey God. So also through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Whose obedience? Christ. And only through Christ's obedience can any be made righteous. It is only through Jesus that we can be made right with God. First Timothy 2.5 "...for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus." You want to get to the Father, you want to know God, you want to see your life be put back as it should be, you're tired of sin, you're tired of brokenness, you're tired of the the shortcomings and the way that you can't even live up to your own expectations, The answer is not a self-help book. It's not a new job. It's not cheating on your spouse. It's not buying a new car or a bigger house. The answer is Jesus Christ. And you get right with God and your life is made whole again when you turn yourself over to the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is the only way. And those of you who are Christians... If you have reached a point in your life where you want to soften the truth of the gospel, where you want to say, well, maybe, i got to tell you, Jesus does not allow room for that. There is one way of salvation. Only through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Does that feel unfair? Maybe. Does that, is that a hard pill to swallow? Possibly. It's because we love people, don't we? And we have people we love that we know when judgment comes, they will be on the wrong side of it. And it breaks our heart. And we want so badly, so badly for there to be a workaround, for there to be a different way, for there to be a second chance. But Scripture says unequivocally that Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. Period. And if you call yourself a Christian and you say you believe the Word of God, That is the only truth that you can grab onto and share. Stop equivocating. Stop getting soft on the gospel. Stop thinking, well, maybe good people, well, maybe people in other faiths. No, the Bible tells us very specifically, Jesus and Jesus alone. Because in all the world, Jesus is the sole provider of salvation and peace with God. That's it. Just Jesus Now we've been going through Colossians and we've been talking about the vain philosophies of the world. And the vain philosophies of the world, they tell us that there are many ways to God, don't they? Lots of ways to God. As long as you're a good person or or maybe you'll take a different path or or maybe this or maybe that. There's a, a quippy poem by a poet named Steve Turner. Poems titled Creed. We believe that all religions are basically the same. At least the one that we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. (laughs) Right. It's a quippy little poem, huh? All religions are the same except for where they don't agree, which are on issues of creation and sin and heaven and hell and God and salvation. They all espouse love and goodness. Well, yes, we all long for love and goodness, don't we? But if we don't have the truths of creation and sin and heaven and hell and God and salvation correct, we do not have a saving faith. And it's so important that we understand there are not many paths to get to God. God isn't on a mountaintop and lots of different ways to get there. Because scripture tells us and Jesus himself tells us there's only one way. And if you trust in Jesus Christ, then you must adhere to what he's taught and walk in a way that shares with others there's one way to get right with God, and that is through Jesus the Christ. Now, what is sin? The sin that we've been talking about. Literally, sin, when we look at the word in its original language, it's, it's related to like archery or, or to, to uh, target practice, and it is to miss the mark. To miss the mark. To miss the mark is sin. And, and so, you know, you're, you're trying to shoot for a bullseye and you, you shoot down and to the right. That's where I always shoot for some reason. I always shoot down and to the right. Don't know why. Whether it's a gun or it is a bow and arrow, it's always down and to the right. Somebody who knows these things should diagnose me and help me do better. But when I miss the bullseye, it is sin. Spiritually, the way that God created us his plans for our life, the, the perfect standards by which He made us to live, that's the bullseye. And everything we do that misses God's purpose and potential for us is sin. Now, I, I'm going to tell you something, that, that different world religions describe sin differently. Did you know that, that essentially Buddhism and Hinduism describe sin as suffering and, and why would I say Well, they, they see that the world isn't right and that makes us all suffer. And in their mind, the only way to understand how to make the world right is to begin to know the truths that will help you see that the world is all pretend anyway. It's all an illusion. It's not real. What? How crazy is that? But you see, they, they understand what sin is. It's a thing that messes up this life. It's injustice. It's suffering. This is sin. This is what Jesus died for. Sin, suffering, evil, an unfulfilled life. These are all the same thing. Missing the mark. Failing to meet the plans and potential that God has placed in you. If you have in your heart a hatred against the injustices of this world, you have in your heart A frustration with how things are unfair. You have in your heart a feeling that people should be kind and generous. And why can't we just love one another? You know what sin is. And I challenge you, look into your own heart and you will find it there. And the only answer for sin is the death of Jesus on the cross. And his resurrection proves that to be true. But the world's systems, they'll tell us some things like this. There are, there are systems that are called epistemic, or they're about knowing. If you just know something, if you learn something, then you'll be a better person. Knowledge equals salvation. We're Self-help books, they're great for this, right? Even the Christian ones. Hey, do these three things, know these five things, and your life will be better. Specifically, Religions like Buddhism, Hinduism are related to knowing a truth, knowing a secret knowledge and hoping that knowing would bring salvation, but it doesn't because you can never know enough. There's pragmatic faiths and some of us, we're more pragmatic. We think that if we just do the right things, then we'll be okay with God. If we work really hard, if we attend church enough, if, if we... Um, we, we pay enough in tithe, if we do the right rituals, then we'll be okay. We'll be right with God. Hard work equals salvation. Islam is like this. You know, Islam has five pillars, five things that a a believer must do in order to be even close to having a chance of being saved. But the truth is, is no one can do them perfectly. Everyone falls short. Hard work will not pay off when we're talking about spiritual life. And then we have people who are existentialists. They, they pursue feelings. If I just experience something, I'll be fine. They want to know God and, and then feel Him. And, and I'm going I'm to step on some toes, but I'm going to say, if you are of the mindset that the outdoors is my church, I just feel God there. Here's what you're doing You're failing to be faithful. You're failing to submit to God. But instead, you're pursuing a feeling. You're pursuing an event or an experience. You're like, I'm so spiritual, but I don't have to be religious. And you've convinced yourself that you're a deeply spiritual person because you like to fish. Or because you like to hike. Or because you like to do whatever. But the truth is, is these feelings, they don't save a couple of of church movements, a couple of of, uh, false teachers. We could point out everything from Bethel and Hillsong where it's all about ginning up your emotions, trying to get you to feel God. Oh, look, gold dust from the vents. There's God. We've experienced something amazing. That doesn't save you if you're walking in rebellion against God and have not trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. All these different ways. And, and these things make sense to us. We think, oh, if I just work harder, God will love me more. If I just believe the right things, God will love me more. If I just feel Him, I can know that I'm saved. And we reject Jesus and all that He did in order to try and achieve salvation in our own mindset, in our own ways. And, and Trevin Wax writes in this book, Before You Lose Your Faith, in chapter 1, he says, Truth is strange. We didn't invent it. Fiction makes more sense. Heresy always seems reasonable. Heresy is those teachings that are against biblical doctrine or biblical teachings. Does this make sense? It's Why is the gospel so hard to understand? Why is it so hard to believe? Why is it so hard to turn our lives over to Jesus? Because we, it's strange, right? How could somebody love us like that? Why would God do that for us? How can I be saved and not have to know, do, or feel anything specific? How, how is it that I just have to believe and I can be made right with God through what Jesus did on the cross? How is that possible? It doesn't make sense. It makes much more sense that if I attend church a certain number of times a year, I'll be saved, doesn't it? It makes more sense if I give 10% of my income, then I'll be saved, right? makes a lot more sense to say, if I feel God at a concert, then I know I'm genuinely saved. These are all fictions that make more sense to us, but they are not the strange truth that will save you. Because the truth is, the only way to get to God is through Jesus Christ. The only means of salvation for anyone, anywhere, on this whole earth is to believe on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and turn your life over to Him. Your faithfulness to a church, though I appreciate your faithfulness here, your faithfulness to a church will not save you. No matter how many Bible studies you go to and how much you know from Genesis to Revelation, that will not save you. No matter how high you raise your hands, no matter how you dance, no matter how much you feel God, That will not save you. Only by making Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, turning your life over to Him, can you be saved. John 3, 16 through 18. We all love John 3, 16, because it says, for God loved the world in this way. God so loved the world that He sent Jesus. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Hallelujah. Hooray. Hooray. And we kind of stop there and go, well, God just loves us and stuff. We have to understand that's the beginning of the story. He loves us. He sent Jesus. If if you believe on him, you will have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Man, this just gets better and better, doesn't it? God sent Jesus to save everyone who would believe. But then Jesus says this as he's. Teaching Nicodemus, anyone who believes in him is not condemned, or is, excuse me, yes, anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Look, there is hope for everyone who would believe on Jesus. If you do not believe on Jesus, though, you already stand condemned in judgment before him. Scripture is so clear in this. And the only means of salvation is Jesus. As we wrap up this morning, celebrating the resurrection and and what it means for us, there are some things you need to know you cannot do. You cannot know enough to be saved. I don't care who you are. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how much you can retain. I don't care how much of the Bible you've memorized. You cannot know enough to be saved. You cannot do enough to be saved. You can be at church every Sunday and and, and every Wednesday and at every Bible study. You can give 30% of your income. You can eat all the wafers and drink all the juice. You can do whatever you think is right and try and be a good person and you cannot do enough to be saved. You cannot experience enough. You can pursue Jesus and the Holy Spirit through worship and concerts. You can you, you know watch television shows, you can read devotionals, you can try and have all the feels you want. And you cannot experience enough in order To save yourself. Nothing you know, nothing you do, nothing you feel or experience can save you. But Jesus alone, Jesus, he lived for you. You need to understand what the gospels tell us. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. First of all, that he might be the sacrifice for your sin. And second of all, his active obedience becomes our passive righteousness. In other words, Jesus obeyed on our behalf. And so when God looks at us after we've received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he lived for us. And so God sees the righteousness of Christ when we belong to Him. Jesus alone lived for you. Jesus alone died for you on the cross to pay the price for your sin. And Jesus alone rose again to declare that He is the truth. So today on Resurrection Sunday, above all others, it's important that you not just have a nominal Christianity, that you not just think that, well, if I do, if I believe, if I feel I'm good. No, you need to come to a place in your life where you understand nothing that you do can save you. But there is one who did everything that you might be saved. He paid the price. He did it all. So that on that That afternoon from the cross when he declares, it is finished. He means it. The work is done. He rose again to declare it's an absolute thing that all who would believe on him might be saved. And that, that struggle that you feel, that hatred towards the broken things in this world and the broken things in your own life and the way that nothing matches up to the vision of perfection that you have in your heart that is God-given in your conscience speaking to you saying, you need salvation. And the only way it comes is through Jesus Christ. So you might ask today, what do you need to do to be saved? Aha, well, let me tell you. Acts 16, 30-31, the, the exact same question was asked of the Apostle Paul. He and Silas had been in jail, there had been an earthquake, they were set free. The jailer is like, oh my goodness, they all stayed, uh, all the prisoners stayed, and, and the jailer's like, okay, i got to know more about this, Jesus. And then he asks Paul this, uh, what must I do to be saved? And of course the Apostle Paul, he says, Read the whole Bible. Do all of the symbols and liturgy and things. Make sure you raise your hands in worship and do the the Pentecostal two-step, right? And then you can be saved. You, You need to do, you need to know, you need to feel before you can be saved. No, he says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The word believe there is not just a, a, a mental acknowledgement, but when we, when we see believe in the New Testament, it is literally a picture of stepping off and trusting to, to be putting your whole weight, your whole being into the hands of, of someone else. I, don't worry, Shelly, I won't get a stool and stand on it. I'm getting... A little older. Yeah, I might break a hip. (laughs) The best example of it, though, is a crazy pastor who will take a stool and climb up on it and say, see, I trust this stool. It's the same thing. You've got to be so into Jesus that you put your whole life into his hands. We're told this. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Jesus is the only way of salvation, and all it takes to be saved is to believe on him as your Lord and Savior. Now, what will that result in in your life? It will result in a change, an ask from him that you obey that you walk with him, that you try and see the world through his eyes, that you seek to be the person he longs for you to be. But the cool thing is, you're already right with God and with Jesus. And it's a process of getting better from that point. Look, I, I know some of you here this morning, you might be like struggling with faith. You might be struggling with questions of, well, is is Christianity even really true? You might be struggling with, with trying to reconstruct something in your life. And so I want to make an offer to you this morning. And it doesn't matter if you're a regular attender. It doesn't matter if you're just a visitor. If you're here this morning and you're really struggling and feeling like you want to have faith, but you don't know what that means. You want to believe on Jesus. You you want to see the world made better. You want to see things made right. You really long for justice and fairness and equity and equality in your own life. You really want to see the end of hatred and death in the world around you. The answer to all of those problems is found only in Jesus Christ. And maybe you're struggling to understand that and struggling to see that. And maybe you're struggling to, to really Wrap your head around Jesus. I want to offer you a book. I've got two copies up here that you could take a physical copy. Or, if these are gone or you're too lazy to come up to the front, (laughs) if you were to either email me at questions at faithlakeside.com or to text that number, I will send you a digital copy of this book to your email address. So, text me or email me book in quotes, right, and your email address if you're texting me, and I will send you a digital copy of this book. This book is not an answer to every question you will ever have about faith, but what this book can do is give you a starting point if you've been struggling with your Christianity, if you struggle with believing that Jesus is the only way, if you struggle with the the unfairness of the world and how Christianity doesn't seem to answer the questions the way you would prefer, I want to encourage you to start here in this book and then come back regularly as we go into more detail in this book and you can see how it applies to your life and why the answers are in here more so than in any other place in this world. This morning as we wrap up, if you have questions, if you have unclear thoughts, if you want a copy of this book, email or text me. If this morning you come, have come to a place where you say, you know what, I get this Christianity, I get Jesus, I know that I need to be saved. I want to encourage you to turn to someone during our last song and just talk to them about what it would mean for you to be saved. Uh, Where are our elders? So Don is there. Steve is in the back. We've got two other elders who are here who can help to guide you. We've got youth leaders, students. You've got great youth leaders who can share with you. Other adults. We've got deacons. If you need to know, and you want to talk to somebody this morning, don't leave without finding one of our church leaders and asking. Let's close with a word of prayer. And then our worship team will finish our last song this morning. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you that you brought your son Jesus back to life today. You raised him up out of the tomb. You made his body new. You declared that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the, 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 the Son of God, and that he is risen to prove he can bring forgiveness, that he can restore life, and that he really will judge all of us someday. And so we celebrate the resurrection and all that it proves to us. And this morning we pray that, that if there are those in here that are struggling with being believers, with being a Christian, those who know that they need to trust your Son for the first time as their Savior, that you would give them confidence and boldness to ask questions, to talk to someone, to step out and pursue the salvation and the renewed life that can only come through your Son, Jesus. And so we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to the resurrection power this morning and help us to live in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. With your eyes still closed and your head still bowed, I just, if you are in a place, eyes closed, heads bowed, you're in a place where you're just struggling with your faith right now or you want to know more about Christianity but you're not sure what to do or, or even this morning you, you want the boldness to talk to somebody about what it would mean for you to be saved. Would you just slip your hand up? It doesn't have to be up high, just above your shoulder and I just want to pray for you. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to be able as a pastor to pray for anybody who's got questions or struggles and you'd like me to pray for you this morning. Would you just slip those hands up one more time for me if you put them up. Thank you. Thank you. Bless these, Lord, who are struggling, who have questions, or maybe who are ready to be saved but don't not quite know where to, to go to ask and who to talk to. I pray that you would give them boldness. I pray that you would even now bring to mind exactly who they need to go talk to whether it's me, one of the other elders, a a leader, a family member who invited them, that you would give them the boldness to just go and say, I need to know more about Jesus. I need to have this question answered. I'm ready to be saved. Would you give them the boldness to do that, Lord? For all of us, may we have the boldness to continue to seek you. come to a place where we can trust Jesus with all that we are. (laughs) Thank you for these who have raised their hands. Strengthen them and help them to reach out for help. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final song of the morning.